talking on the doctrine of the Trinity. So we're actually starting a new series at church. I believe Kenny and um, Pastor Darren are going to have a few messages after this on the same theme. Uh, so some of the questions we're going to be looking at is, like, Jesus. Is Jesus a created being or is he God who created the world? Um, who do we as Christians worship? Do we worship three gods or do we worship one God? These are the sorts of questions we're going to be examining this morning as we think about this teaching of the Trinity. Um, before we actually look at what the Bible has to say, I want us to just get like a, a definition of what historical um, Trinitarianism is or what the church has believed throughout the centuries concerning the nature of God. So there's a, there's a gentleman by the name of James White. He's a theologian and an apologist, which means he defends the Christian faith. He often debates Muslims and other religions. Um, and in his book, which you can get if you're interested more in the, uh, the teaching of the Trinity, it's called The Forgotten Trinity. He, um, he defines the Trinity. He says, Within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, the first thing we need to make very clear off the start of this is that the word Trinity doesn't actually appear in your Bibles. There's no point in doing a search for the word Trinity in your Bible because you just won't find it. It's a, it's a word we use to describe what God has revealed himself like throughout the pages of Scripture. So I'm going to tease it out this morning um, as we look at the nature of God. But traditional Christianity believes that there is one eternal God who created the whole world. But that one eternal God has revealed himself in three co-equal persons. The Father, the Son, who we know as Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. It's not three gods, but it's one God. The one eternal God, three persons. So nature and personhood are two different things. He's not schizophrenic, that's for sure. Now, I'm not a Trinitarian because of my church denomination. I'm not a Trinitarian because of philosophy um, or any of those other reasons. I'm a Trinitarian because I believe that's what Scripture teaches. And this morning, if at the end of my sermon you have an issue with the Trinity, you don't have an issue with me, you don't have an issue with traditional Christianity. You have an issue with the Word of God. Because the Word of God, nearly on every single page, declares that God is triune in the way that He reveals Himself to His creation. And I'm going to show you that. So, um, I was going to apologize for using too many scriptures this morning, because I sometimes do that, but people keep rebuking me for saying that. So, uh, I'm not going to apologize, and I'm probably going to use more scripture than I've ever used before. But I am going to have it on the screen behind me, so it should be fairly easy to follow along. Now, before we uh, look at the Trinity, I want to just have a brief look at what some of the other Abrahamic religions teach concerning the nature of God. So, starting with Islam, you know, the Muslim faith. Now, Muslims do not believe in a triune God, but they do believe in one God. So, they are monotheistic. There's one God who created the world, the Almighty, who they refer to as Allah. But they would see Jesus as a prophet sent by God. They would see him as a mere human. Jesus is not in any shape or fashion, God, he's just a human prophet, according to the Islamic faith. Um, their big issue, actually, with Christianity is that they don't really understand that when we talk about the Son of God, they think of it in physical terminology. They think we're talking that God somehow had a wife and bore a child in heaven. So when you're speaking to a Muslim, just, just keep that in mind. They, they think Son of God physically, not spiritually, and not... Uh, speaking of the titles of Jesus. Then we could come to a different group, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the guys that knock on your door. I have a um, JW um, who works as a subcontractor at our business, and uh, 
one day I came up to his car and I knocked on his car door and he rolled down his window and I said, oh, I just wanted to return the favor for all the times you knocked on my door. <laughs> but I, uh, I gave him a, a little uh, A4 sheet of paper with all these Bible verses about how Jesus is God. So we're still friends. It's all good. I'm just returning the favor. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses, they too believe in one God. So they too are a monotheistic faith. Um, however, they don't believe that Jesus is God. They believe that God actually created Jesus, that Jesus is the first of God's creations. In fact, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that um, Jesus is the angel Michael or the archangel Michael as recorded in scripture. So for a Jehovah's Witness, they believe he's just an angelic being, the first of God's creation. Then they believe that both this angel and God created the world. So that's the Jehovah's Witness position. They also believe that the Holy Spirit is a power rather than a person, likened to electricity or gravity. Now, when it comes to the Mormons, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you'd think they'd have a smaller title than that. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mormons are lovely, sweet folk, but um, they believe in something completely different again. Mormons actually believe in three gods. Uh, they believe that the Father is a distinct God from Jesus and from the Holy Spirit, who is likewise God. However, Mormons believe that the Father and the Son are both physical beings in that they have a body of flesh and bones. So Mormons actually believe that the Father's about six foot tall. I'm not exaggerating. Um, they believe he's a man, a glorified man. They believe Jesus is a glorified man. And to go further, Mormons also believe in multiple gods, you know, out there in the celestial kingdom, but they tend to just focus on these three gods that created the world together. Um, they also believe that Jesus was created through a spirit wife in heaven, that he was physically born to God the Father. So again, they have a very literalistic view of that. Uh, so when Mormons tell you that they're Christians, they tell you that Jesus is their redeemer and all this sort of language, we've just got to realize that they don't mean what we mean when they use these terms. And the reason why I'm sharing this with you is because I'm hoping that you'll interact with people with different opinions. I'm hoping you'll take the word of God to them. I'm hoping that when a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door, you don't slam the door in their face. You invite them in and you have a conversation with them. They need to hear about Jesus the Savior. So I'm going to equip you this morning to present Christ as King, to present Christ as the living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Now, um, one of the things that a group like the Jehovah's Witnesses or even the Muslims will do if you present this idea of the Trinity is they'll go straight to history and they'll tell you that the Trinity was invented around 325 AD by the Emperor Constantine at the Council of Nicaea. They've got beautiful pictures of three-headed statue gods in pagan religion and they say that what happened was when Christianity became the official religion of Rome, they adopted all these pagan beliefs including the doctrine of the Trinity. And they argue that no Christian prior to AD 30, 325 believed in the teaching that Jesus was God, that the Holy Spirit was God, and the Father was God. Um, so that's their claim. Now that was really successful 20 years ago before Google was invented. But anyone can go on Google right now and type in Bible verses, Jesus is God, and you will find multitudes of Bible verses. If you type in early Christians who believe Jesus is God, you'll find multiple um, statements from Christians before 325 AD who believed that Jesus was more than a man. So it's just for a few examples, one gentleman by the name of Polycarp, he was born in AD 69. He was the bishop or the teacher or pastor of the church in Smyrna. 
And he was also a, a direct disciple of the Apostle John that we read about in Scripture. Now, he wrote a letter to the Christians in Philippi, and he said that his hope was that people would believe in our Lord and God, Jesus Christ, and in his Father who raised him from the dead. So this is a direct disciple of the Apostle John saying that he believed that Jesus Christ was not only our Lord, but he was also our God. Ignatius in AD 50, that's when he was born. Um, so again, in the first century, he was the bishop of the church at Antioch. He was also a direct disciple of the Apostle John. And in his letter to the Ephesian believers, he wrote, For our God, Jesus the Christ, was conceived by Mary according to God's plan, both from the seed of David and of the Holy Spirit. And in another place, he wrote, God appeared in human form to bring the newness of eternal life. These are early, early Christians. These are first generations, straight after the death of the disciples. Justin Martyr, AD 100 to 165, he was a defender of the Christian faith. In his letter to dialogue, called Dialogue with Trypho, he wrote, Permit me first to recount the prophecies which I wish to do in order to prove that Christ is called both God and Lord of hosts. These guys had a really high view of God. One last one, Irenaeus of Lyons, AD 130. He was bishop of a place that was later named Lyons, France, because that didn't actually exist um, when he lived. Um, he studied under Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, and he wrote the following, Christ Jesus is our Lord and our God and our Savior and our King according to the will of the Invisible Father. What a high view of the Lord Jesus. At the same time, distinguishing that the Father is a separate person, but the same God. And then he says it in a different place, Christ himself, therefore, together with the Father, is the God of the living, who spoke to Moses and who also manifested to the fathers. He believed that the Lord Jesus spoke to Moses. So anyone who does basic research can find these things. It's not hard at all. You can Google it later on and you find pages and pages and you can read their, uh, their letters to one another. But we want to see what the Word of God says. You see, God has revealed Himself in the pages of Scripture. Like I said before, I'm not a Trinitarian because the early Christians believed in the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm a Trinitarian because I believe that God's Word is true. And that's what we can base our authority on. So let's look at the Scriptures. But before we do that... Just a, just a general thought. Um, what do we think... Sorry, my, my iPad has betrayed me again. It's that apple symbol with the, the bite mark out of it. It's a symbol of sin in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> so how would you describe God? Like, if I was to ask you, what makes God, God? Or if someone on the street asked you, why, what is God? Like, why is God worshipped? What makes Him distinct from all other things? Um, I'm sure we could come up with a lot of answers to that question, but the primary thing that I think of when I think of God is that He's our eternal Creator. He's the one who created all things. He's the reason we have the planet Earth. He's the reasons we have stars in the sky. God created all things. And we get this from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's what makes him worthy of our worship. That's what qualifies him to be the judge of the world. We're all going to appear before God and give an account of our lives to him for how we've lived on this earth because we're his creatures. He owns us. He owns all of creation because he's the one who brought it into existence. And 
If you know the scriptures well, you know that Jesus said that the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment to the Son, even though in the Old Testament every passage of judgment says that it was God himself who was going to judge his people. So we know that the Lord Jesus is claiming to have equal authority as the Father of the Old Testament. Now, unlike New Age beliefs, which state that God and the universe are one thing, um, we as Christians believe that they're separate, that God is not the same as the universe. We shouldn't be going around thanking the universe that we found a car park. We should, we should be thanking God, the maker of the universe. We shouldn't be worshipping crystals and stones. We shouldn't be speaking to angels and worshipping angels when God himself is accessible to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, through the blood of Jesus, we have direct access to God. You don't need to pray through Mary, the Virgin Mary. You don't need to pray through an angel. And you don't need to contact God through a crystal or a Ouija board. You can have direct access to God because God declares you righteous and holy on the basis of the death of His Son. You see, His blood can wash you clean so that you can have a relationship with a holy God. You see, God raised Jesus from the dead so that we would know that we too could have everlasting life totally unrelated to the Trinity in a lot of ways, but at the same time, if you don't get that, you can't have a relationship with God. You've got to trust in Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the door. He says, I give my sheep eternal life and they shall never perish. The Lord Jesus said that. All right, so we know that God is eternal. We get this from Psalm 90 verse 2 and many other places, but Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Continuing on, we, as I mentioned before, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And that the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the first chapter of our Bibles. We're introduced to, the, to this idea that not only did God create the heavens and the earth, but the Spirit of God was in, also involved in creation. Who is this mysterious Spirit of God? Is it an extension of God? Is it a person of God? We're not told. We're just told that the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters as He was creating. We'll come back to that. Later on in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us, plural, make man in our image, according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So here we see God speaking of himself in the plural, saying, let us make man in our image. Now, I went on jw.org. If you're ever interested in knowing what Jehovah's Witnesses believe, they have it all on their website, jw.org. On their official website, they said that uh, they don't believe Jesus is God, but when they're interpreting Genesis 1, they freely admit that the us is both Jesus and the Father. So they'll admit it. They'll say, look, Jesus was involved in creation, but they'll say Jesus is not God. Now, that's really interesting because they're, they're putting their religious beliefs over what the Word of God says. The Word of God says that we were created in the image of God. The Word of God doesn't say we were created in the image of God and an angel helper. You see, we are created in the likeness of God. Let us create man in our image, according to our likeness. And in the image of God, did he, singular, create them? Very important. So one God created the heavens and the earth, but that one God is revealed as a plurality. 
we keep going on, um, maybe we'll have a look at Isaiah 45, verse 18, which says, Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. This is really important. Your Bibles have the name of God in them. Every one of your Bibles. Your Bible is an English translation of the original languages. Uh, most of the Old Testament was in Hebrew. There was a little bit of it in Aramaic. And in the New Testament, we're reading it from, you know, your English Bible is a translation from the ancient Greek. Whenever you see in your Bible, capital L-O-R-D, that is all in capitals, like we see here, Lord, in capitals, that is to let you know as the reader, as an English reader, that it's the name of God, the divine name of God with which he revealed himself to humanity. So he revealed himself to Moses as Yahweh or Jehovah, depending on how people want to pronounce it. The name of God is actually about 7,000 places in the Old Testament. But in English, we always just see Lord in capitals. When you see Lord in lowercase, or just a capital L and the rest in lowercase, it usually denotes the word Adonai, which is just Lord or Master. So you can call an earthly king a lord or master, but you can't call an earthly king Yahweh because that's the unique name of God. This is very important understanding these scriptures. So it's Yahweh himself. This isn't just an earthly master. So Yahweh himself says, I am Yahweh and there is no other. So the one God the Jews worship, the one God the Christians worship, he says there is no other. This will, this will become more important as we carry on. Now, I don't want you lying in bed tonight thinking about, you know, the Bermuda Triangle and, you know, MH370 and why is it that the English translators left it as Lord and didn't translate it as Yahweh. So, just to give you a very, very quick synopsis on that, um, the Jews didn't want the pagans using the name of God in vain. So before Jesus even came to earth, the Jews had already stopped using God's name when they spoke with one another because they were afraid the pagans were going to slander his name or blaspheme his name. And also, when the Old Testament was, was translated into Greek, um, they translated the name of God as Adonai, or Lord. They didn't translate it um, as the name of God. So, you can do your own research on that, but it's, um, it's actually not really that exciting. I just wanted you not to be puzzled by that. So, there's not some big conspiracy. We're not trying to hide the name of God. It's clearly there in all of your English translations in caps lock. Now, if we go back to Isaiah 45:18. Who created the heavens and the earth? Yahweh created the heavens and the earth. Not only did he create the heavens and the earth, but he alone created the heavens and the earth. There was no other participating party in that. But somehow that included the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, and somehow that included the let us make man in our image. Isaiah 44, verse 24, just as another verse. Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am Yahweh, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth, by myself. So again, we have this teaching that God alone created the heavens and the earth. He did it alone. You'll see this everywhere. Just one last example. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 6. You alone are Yahweh. You made heaven and heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. The host of heaven worships Yahweh, the one true God who we worship as well. Now, we don't have time to keep going through the Old Testament like this, otherwise we'll be here all day. So we'll skip to the New Testament, and we'll start in John chapter 1, verse 1. 
It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. So, we learn from John that there's this other entity called the Word. We're not really told if it's a person or not in this particular place. We're just told that the Word, or Logos in the original language, existed with God, but was also God. Interesting. And this Word, this this person or thing called the Word, created everything that was made. And in the Greek, it literally means everything that had a beginning was created by the Word. Anything you can look at has had a beginning in our universe, except God. That's what makes God unique. He had no beginning, and He has no end. He is everlasting to everlasting. So the Word Himself could not have been created by God because He eternally existed with God prior to the creation of all things. And then we read in verse 14 of chapter 1 of John, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And of course we learn that the Word of God is Jesus Christ Himself. The person of Jesus is the Word made flesh dwelling among us. So, according to the Apostle John, Jesus created all things. Now, we'll keep going through. Um, just to confirm this, Paul writes in, first, uh, sorry, in Colossians chapter 1, he speaks of Jesus and he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. By Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities, paladies or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, firstborn refers to his rank. The Lord Jesus is firstborn over all of creation because he's the one who brought it into existence. And I want you to see that when it says that he is the image of the invisible God, Jesus himself revealed this in his earthly ministry when Philip said to him, in, in John chapter 14, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long, Philip, and yet you have not known me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. What a statement. No earthly person could say that. I can't stand before you and say, if you've seen me, you've seen God in heaven. That's ridiculous. So he's either a lunatic, as C.S. Lewis would put it, on the same level as a man who would describe himself as a poached egg, or he is the God made flesh who dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I want you to see too from Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus didn't create just the visible things, but also the invisible. So He created the angelic realm. He created everything in the future. He created everything in the past. Like everything that is made was made by the Lord Jesus. And this is one of the reasons we don't believe He's the angel Michael. This is one of the reasons we don't believe he's a mere prophet or a creature. He is everlasting God. And I'll show this to you from Scripture as we carry on. Now, some of you might be thinking, how is this possible? How can can God show himself in human flesh? Like, does that mean he vacated heaven? Does that mean he ceased to exist up there and he came down here? Like, people get confused about this all the time. This is the importance of the three persons. You see, God, God is omnipresent. We learn from the Old Testament scriptures that He fills the heavens. Yahweh fills the heavens. But but let me show you this from scripture. Genesis chapter 18. Just briefly, Abraham has an encounter with Yahweh. That's what the scripture says. 
Verse 1 of Genesis chapter 18 says the, that the Lord, or Yahweh, appeared to Abraham when he was in a certain place. It says he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. So three men appeared to Abraham. He recognized that Yahweh was among them. And uh, they bring a message to him saying, you know, you're going to have a child, the child of promise, Isaac. Even in your old age, your wife's going to conceive and, and have a child. And then later on, it says, verse 22, the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. Now, when you get to chapter 19, you see that when it says the men turned away from him, it was the two men that turned away from him, and there was a third man left behind. We know that the two men who turned away from him in Genesis chapter 19 were described as angels, but the one that stayed behind to talk to Abraham was described as Yahweh. He was described as God, God in some sort of human form prior to Jesus. And some of you are like, how can this be? This is God. Like, why do we limit God with, with mathematical formulas and, and human reasoning? Have you ever laid outside under the stars and looked at the universe and tried to imagine how big our universe is? Have you ever been like just thinking, man, that one star is probably a trillion stars? Like, the more you think about it, the more it hurts your little brain. Like, we've got to acknowledge our weakness and we've got to acknowledge our pride. Why do people not believe in the doctrine of the Trinity? Because they're prideful. If they can't put God in a box, then they're no longer in control. I'm telling you, God is bigger than your little, small, human, frail mind. We need to humble ourselves before the Creator and acknowledge that God is God. He can simultaneously dwell in the heavens, fill the heavens, fill the hearts of the believers, and appear in human form simultaneously. And He doesn't even break a sweat. That is the God we worship. He has resurrection power to give life to anyone who trusts in Him. That's the God we worship. You could get cremated after you die, and guess what? He can take all of that dust and put you back together. It's not hard for God. He created the world. You can't escape from God. He is everywhere. Jeremiah 23:24. Can anyone hide himself in the secret places so that I shall not see him? Says Yahweh, do I not fill heaven and earth? Psalm 139, verse 7 to 8. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, behold, you are there. And this is not just talking about his power being there. This is talking about the person of God is present wherever we go. We can't escape God. We can't escape his eyes. We can't escape him from speaking to us. It kind of reminds me of the scene we see at the baptism of Jesus, where all three persons are on display. Jesus goes down into the waters of baptism, and as he comes up out of the waters, it says that the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove. And then you hear a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So you have the Father speaking from heaven as the Spirit is coming upon Jesus, the Son of God. You have all three persons in the same scene. You know, he's not wearing a different hat and jumping from stage to stage. He's present both on earth and in heaven simultaneously, and he can do that because he's God. Now, one of the distinguishing marks of God is because he's creator, because he created all things, and he's worthy, well, he's worthy of our worship is the end of it. He's worthy of our worship, you know. Who do we turn and give thanks to? We give thanks to God who made us. And so, when Satan was tempting Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, Satan said, I'll give you all the kings in the world if you fall down and worship me. 
And Jesus quoted to him Deuteronomy and said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship Yahweh your God, and him only shall you serve. So that was Jesus' understanding of Deuteronomy, is that you shall worship God only, and him only shall you serve. So in other words, it would be absolute blasphemy to worship Jesus if he was not God. I don't know if you've ever thought of that, but that's one of the reasons why Jehovah's Witnesses will not pray to Jesus and they will not worship Jesus because they don't see Jesus as God and they recognize that if he's not God, he's not to be worshipped. If he's just a creature, we ought not worship him. And yet we were worshipping him this morning, so hopefully we're not in hot water. Don't worry, I'll put put your minds at ease. So Yahweh alone is to be worshipped. This is one of the strongest arguments for the deity of Christ. It's found in Revelation chapter 5. You can read the whole of Revelation chapter 5 when you get a chance, maybe when you get home, so you can see the full context, but I'll just read a portion of it. Revelation chapter 5, verse 13 to 14. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen, and the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. You see, in heaven, we're going to be worshipping the Lamb on the throne, which if he's not Yahweh, is absolute blasphemy. He is the God of heaven enthroned. The Lamb is enthroned in heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and all of creation is going to declare that Jesus is Lord. Every knee will bow to him. Every tongue will confess to him. And as Jesus himself said, the Father judges no one has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. We can go further with this. But before I go further, I just want to face some objections because if you do meet a Jehovah's Witness on the street, they're quite crafty and they'll stump you if you're not ready for it. So I'm going to tell you their strongest arguments. So you ready for their strongest arguments? So... How would you, I don't want you to answer this, but in your heads, how would you answer this? Someone comes to you and says, yes, I hear what you're saying, Jesus is God. But in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, when it's talking about the child Jesus, it says that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. How can God increase in wisdom? I thought God had all wisdom. Or Mark 13, verse 32, Jesus is telling the disciples about the second coming. He says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. But wait a second, I thought the Son of God was God. But yet, he says he doesn't know the time of his second coming, that the Father knows that, but that he doesn't. Is is Jesus somehow ignorant of these facts? Another one, John chapter 14, verse 28. This is their central verse for why Jehovah's Witness doesn't receive Jesus as God. The central verse, John 14, verse 28. Jesus said, the Father is greater than I. They say, look, the Father is greater than Jesus. He admits it himself. Therefore, Jesus can't be God because the Father is greater than him. Now, before you uh, lose sleep tonight and get really confused, does the Father need to sleep? Does the Father need to eat food? Did the Father need to learn the Hebrew language as a baby? Um, but yet Jesus had to do all of those things the one who created the worlds the one who had the wisdom to create the worlds the one who knew all things who filled the heavens 
somehow humbled himself when he took on human flesh in such a way that he limited his own knowledge of these things and took on the form of a servant. So I'll just give you two verses that confirm what what I just said. John chapter 17, verse 5, Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer. And he says, I've glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is not the language of an angel. This is someone who shared the exact glory of God in the heavenly before he came to earth. So Jesus is acknowledging that in his earthly ministry, he does not have the same level of glory as he had prior to the incarnation and even what we see in the book of Revelation with all of the angels worshipping him. Now, if I were to ask you, who is Yahweh of Isaiah's book in the Old Testament? You know, the prophet Isaiah wrote all about God, all throughout his prophecy. You know, one that would come to mind, the really vivid one, is Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. It says that, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up on his throne, and there were seraphim, flying around, covering their faces, covering their feet, and with two wings they flew, crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And Isaiah's response was, Woe is me, I've seen Yahweh, I've seen the Lord, the Lord of hosts. And so Yahweh saw the glory of God in in His vision. And yet in John's Gospel, in John chapter 12, John tells us that, it was actually the Lord Jesus that, that Isaiah had seen on his throne in Isaiah chapter 6. Isn't that wild? So like I said at the start of this, if you have an issue with Jesus being the glorified one on the throne, you have an issue with Scripture. You don't have an issue with um, you know, church history or anything like that. It's Scripture you have an issue with. The Word of God declares plainly that the Lord Jesus shared the glory of the Father prior to the Incarnation. And probably the most important verse on this, Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. says, Though he was God, speaking of Jesus, Though he was God, he did not consider equality with God as something he needed to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, he took on the humble position of a slave, and was born as a human being. It's perfectly fine for the scriptures to say the man, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's perfectly fine to say that and in the same breath to say that he is God in human flesh. Because that's what the word of God says. He humbled himself and took on flesh and dwelt among us. And it's an encouragement to us. You see, Jesus did everything in full reliance on the Father. He said, of myself I can do nothing, but whatever I hear, you know, that I declare to you. So the very words of Jesus were the very words of God. The Lord Jesus needed to pray throughout his earthly ministry, depending fully on the Father for all things, rather than acting as God. And that's why he's an encouragement to us. He was, in a sense, the perfect Christian. He was the model believer that you and I can imitate or strive to imitate because the Lord Jesus did everything he did in perfect obedience and dependence on the Father. Now, I want to get close to the end here. So Isaiah 44, verse 6 says, Thus says the Lord, or thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. That's the declaration of the God we find in the book of Isaiah. Besides me, there is no God. I'm the King of Israel. I'm the Redeemer. 
I'm the Lord of hosts. I'm Yahweh of hosts. I'm the first and I am the last. That's a title that God ascribes to himself as being the only God, the God of Israel. So if you ask a Jew or a Jehovah's Witness, who is Yahweh? Who is this God? He is the King of Israel. He is the Redeemer. He is the Lord of hosts. That is the true answer. And he goes by the title, the first and the last. What do we find in the New Testament? Revelation chapter 1. The Apostle John has an encounter with this heavenly one, this vision. And it says he sees this person who had in his right hand seven stars and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Who has the sharp two-edged sword? We read from other places in Scripture, it's the Lord Jesus when he comes in, in judgment. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me. So this is a person laying his right hand on him and saying to him, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. The Lord Jesus Christ declares himself to be the first and the last that the prophet Isaiah said was the one true God who created the heavens and the earth. And then in Revelation chapter 22, verse 12 to 13, And behold, I am coming quickly, speaking of Christ coming back, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. The Lord Jesus is coming again, and the Lord Jesus has declared himself to be the God of our created universe. He has no beginning and he will have no end and his, his reign will go forever and ever. That is the God who we worship. That's why we get excited in worship. It may not always seem like it. You know, sometimes I'm distracted you know, with other things. Sometimes you know, we lack caffeine in our veins. But when we really get going and we sing these songs, we remember who God is. God is King of kings and Lord of lords. God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, worthy of all worship. He's worthy of our time this morning. We don't come to church just to tick a box. We come to church to meet with the living God. And He's accessible to us. He came down in the person of Jesus. And after the Jesus ascended to the Father, He sent the promised Holy Spirit so that we could know God deeply and intimately right here and now. You say in these visions, where is the Holy Spirit? How can we always see the Lamb on the throne? How can we always see the Father on the throne? Where is the Holy Spirit? According to the book of Corinthians... Your body has become the temple of the living God. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not in any of these visions. The Holy Spirit lives in every person who has trusted in Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. If you've been cleansed by the blood, God will fill you with His presence. You can know Him personally and intimately. Which is why, in these last set of verses, we look at something like, you know, Paul, when he finishes his letter to the Second Corinthians, he says, you know, may the love of God... Oh, I might have to... Can you put that slide up, Eli? Yeah, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God wants to have fellowship with us and He has fellowship with us through the person of His Holy Spirit. But there's three persons mentioned there, just like in our formula for water baptism. Jesus commanded us to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. The name, the singular name, the one person, the one God revealing himself in three persons. 
baptizing him in the singular name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We worship a God who's revealed himself in a triune nature. I could go on for hours this morning, but we do have other things to do, and we do have other people who are going to share the Word of God with you in subsequent weeks. You know, we're going to be looking at the Trinity a little bit deeper. I'm hoping that Kenny or Darren touches on the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit's not just like electricity or a force. The Scriptures say the Holy Spirit can be grieved. You can only grieve a person. You can't grieve the power of God. So the Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Scriptures also say that the Holy Spirit teaches us things. Well, only a person can teach us things. It even says that the Holy Spirit will teach us things that He hears from the Father. So He's separate from the Father. He's hearing something from the Father and bringing it to us here on earth to reveal the will of God. The Holy Spirit is very much God and very much a person. But we don't have time to go into Him this morning. But we're going to end with a song. If I can get the worship team back on stage. That last song, or one of the last songs we sung, Praise the Father, Praise the Son, Praise the Spirit, three in one because I want us to sing it with new eyes, that God of glory was manifested among us in the person of the Lord Jesus. The God of glory came to us. He revealed himself to us. It's such an amazing thing. Go home and think about it. Think about the fact that God has revealed himself in our earthly history. What a privilege. We don't just have a historical document. We have a living person. Amazing. And you can know him. You can know Him this morning through the person of His Holy Spirit. If you trust in Jesus, if you trust, the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, that you will be saved and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's for any single person. God can save anyone. Jesus can save anyone. I wear this shirt just to remind us in case we come in here feeling wretched, the Lord Jesus can rescue you. Thank you.